All right, well, it's, it's time. It's time to have conflict. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm sure folks will come as their kids are dropped off. But Father, thank you for this new day in our lives since your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness to us is great. Father, we all fall short. We all sin and fall short of your glory. But the very next verse, you declare us righteous by your grace. Father, this morning, um, I pray you'd open our eyes to our own vulnerabilities that contribute to conflict that happens in marriage. And, uh, Father, that you would transform us so that shalom is restored in our us. And that we can uh, each do our part to make our marriages a safe haven, a refuge. And uh, so, so guide us and lead us today, I pray in Jesus' name. So, John 13, 34, and 35, I'd like to be our, our, our theme verse, where Jesus said a new command to give you, and that's to love one another. And each of you shall love each other the way, you must love each other the way that I've loved you. And, and so I'm hoping in all the rest of our time together that we can explore some passages of scripture around how do we love each other the way that God has loved us through Christ. And, uh, but I want to say thank you so much for the disruption, for allowing that, for bearing with me. I needed to go to California to take care of some family issues, which got taken care of, so I can very relieved. I can stay in Knoxville, hopefully, for a good while. So I do appreciate that. I'm very, very happy about that. Did anybody have a team meeting? Try a team meeting. You structured and had. What was that like? And have you had one before? And then what was it like to actually have a team meeting? Anybody have any thoughts? Those of you who weren't here last time, we want to learn from each other. So it's not just me talking the whole time. Yes. Uh, we, we did one yesterday. Work. Chattanooga and I live here, so we kind of have to like structure our weeks a little bit differently. So when I'm talking about like syncing your schedules and like when's your next date, and I was like, well, it'll be the weekend, and when's your next date, like, well, it'll be the weekend. Because, uh -huh. um, but I think it worked really well. Um, we're done anything like that. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate that. I especially have wives come back and say, just knowing that there's going to be time for us to sit and talk and work through problems and issues helps me contain all those random conversations that can generate a lot of stress and spark stress as we go. So um, I'm, I'm hoping, anybody else have any comments about that? What was it like to actually structure that time and actually get into that space? Yes. Shared, or uh, individual stressors became shared stressors. Individual stressors became shared stressors. There's something powerful about that. At least I hope, right? Because you feel like you're sort of uplifting each other. I think about the, the scripture that says, bear each other's burdens in Galatians 6 and so fulfill the law of Christ. Is, man, we're just really in it together. So it's wonderful. Anybody else? Yes. Anything you were like super schedules? Because um, we realized that like almost every night of the week is busy except for one night. So we were able to actually like, use that. And actually, planning to have a meeting with each other helps you look at your schedule and recognize, whoa, our lives are really 
before when you did it. Hopefully that will help you find out more space for each other and not get sort of the busyness of holes in different directions. Is that sort of a little bit what I'm talking about? Oh, that's good. Okay. Any other thoughts? It, it, it does earn you a lot of, like, I don't want to say points. It earns you a lot of favor <laughs> if you uh, did the homework and you, like, came to the meeting prepared. Like, I think both ways. I'm just saying the guy. But I think it's, um, it, you get some cred for, like, I put in some effort. I invested something in this. You know? Wives, isn't it important for you to know that your, your husband's investing in it, right? Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And it pays off. It pays off. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm not going to read between the lines, but I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to talk about conflict resolution because we know that when we have shalom established in our marriage and and we maintain harmony in our marriage that it's just as going to benefit not just you but your children. We talked last time about how marriage, if you're married, you're more likely, especially as men, to outlive your single counterparts. But for women, it's different. For men, just being married, you're going to live longer is what the research shares. But for women, it's the quality of the marriage that determines their health and their well-being. Does that make sense? Because there's something about our attachment, we're going to talk a little bit about attachment later today, our connection with each other, that when there's tension, a lot of times it's the female that feels responsible for how the relationship is going, sometimes more so than the male, and so she's initiating and bringing up conversations where there's tension. And oftentimes, what we're going to find later today talking about this, sometimes just bringing up a problem or an issue can inadvertently spark conflict. Not the conflict that she wants, because the husband tends to do something when a, an issue or a problem is brought up. But we really want to talk about some strategies for maintaining, a, a, maintaining shalom in our marriage. We know that for children, a stable, happy marriage is it's just one of the best, it's one of the best preventative uh, measures that we can have for their emotional and physical health and well-being. And I always like to start with leveling the playing field. Why do we want to do this? It's because every single one of us have this thing and it's called flesh and James 4, 1 and 2 states it so well. What causes fights or quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but you do not have so you kill. You, you covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight. That's in all of us to some degree. Maybe we, maybe we don't kill. Maybe we cause harm in other ways with put-downs and escalation and other things other than actual uh, something that's, that causes someone's life to cease. But um, that makes sense. We all have it. Let's accept it. Let's get rid of any ideal that, you know, we have to be ideal. Let's be real about this. Elizabeth and I will be real with you about ourselves. Um, but I just want to talk about children briefly because your ability to manage conflict successfully is going to determine a lot about their health and well-being. We know that when there are conflicts in marriage that kids feel scared, sad, they blame themselves. And let's talk about problems with schoolwork. If you have a conflict between each other before your kids go out the door, maybe there's escalation and there's tension. Kids don't have to know the content of it. But their little brains are like sponges that are going to pick up that tension. And what we know is if they go to school stressed, the barely formed prefrontal cortex, their executive functions, they need to, to concentrate 
and to pay attention enough to encode information so they can recall it. As well as their memory functions, we know the middle part of the brain stress hijacks the hippocampus, which is the part of, of your brain to synthesize information into memory file. And so if they can't concentrate, pay attention, encode it, they can't recall it. And oftentimes, there are for years in counseling where a parent would bring a kid, my kid's acting out, my kid's doing this, that, and the other. Um, that I would say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll work with your maybe 8, 10, 12-year-old. I, I don't work with children anymore. I have a colleague who does. But inevitably, after two, three times, I would have a parent reporting session where the parents come in without the kids, and so I would explore, hey, here's what I'm learning. Here's what, I'm, here's what I see in your kid. Now, there's a boundary line I cannot cross without your invitation or permission, and that's your marriage. Do you give me permission to explore some things about your us? Every parent says yes because they want to help their kid. Uh, now, there are exceptions to the rule, like if you, have a, a, if you have a child with attachment issues, especially when you adopt a kid, and, and there's just some, we call it insecure attachment, sort of the, the chaotic kind of attachment that just creates so much conflict in a family. But and I'm not talking about that situation, but in it, it just... The majority of the time, there's tension between mom and dad. And so, I, you know, if we can take some time and get harmony established between you all as parents, let's see what happens to your kids. Because oftentimes, mom and dad act out, and they're having conflict, and their kid starts acting out. Well, it distracts mom and dad from each other, and, and it triangulates the child, and the child's acting out behavior brings stability in some ways, at least in the child. My mom and dad aren't going to leave now because... They're focused on me. It's very reinforcing to the acting out behavior. So um, there are many, I'm not going to go further into that, but there are many reasons why we want to really take a look at this and figure out how to do this different. Um, Sharon May wrote a book called Safe Haven Marriage. I think it's great. Uh, Greg Smalley, this quote I, I, I grabbed from him, make it your goal to create a marriage that feels like the safest place on earth. Psalms 46.1, King David says, God, you are my refuge and my strength, the present help in time of trouble. Well, one way we can love as he loves is to do our part to make our marriage a safe haven. I want my wife to say to me, you're a refuge and strength, the present help in time of trouble. Right? We can co-create with God's help that safe haven. And so, um, again, we're going to explore how to do that. But in order to take a look at this, I like this. Sharon May has this trajectory, safety. You really have to have safety if you're going to have trust, consistent safety. You've got to find ways to manage your relationship when threats enter the picture uh, and manage it well. So out of that consistency, consistency, we have trust. Through that doorway, then we can be vulnerable and intimate. So safety leads to trust, trust to vulnerability, and vulnerability to intimacy. Does that make sense? That we really have to have safety and trust if we're going to have the vulnerable, intimate relationship that we want. So well, let's just talk for a minute about safety. Without safety, it's really hard to connect. It's hard to share what you think and express what you desire and bring up an issue of concern. And in general, just be yourself. Um, 
Like sometimes we have to adapt. Like how do I have to be in order to keep my, my spouse happy with me? We call that codependency. And that doesn't work. There are times you need to speak up and say, sweetheart, what you're doing is not okay with me. Uh, I need to let you know. I have, it's like we all have invisible tripwires. And our partner says or does something, and we have a reaction to that and don't even know why. Well, we need to inform them. Hey, you may not realize it, but when you do this or say that, this is how it affects me. But if you don't feel safe being yourself, it's like jumping through hoops to make sure your partner is okay with you and, and you lose your voice. We don't want that to happen. Um, so let's just talk about safe and rewarding relationships. They're not dangerous. Bottom line safety is physical safety. If something's happening between the two of you where there's any kind of intimidation or threat physically, even non-verbally, like bowing up, I see it all the time with couples, is we've got to find a way to get physical threat out of the relationship, period. Y'all agree with that? As if, if it's not physically safe, it's not safe, period. Um, emotional safety is really what we're talking about. It's that freedom to be yourself, to talk without fighting, to feel emotionally connected, to feel loved, accepted, deeply cared for. And um, the third one we talked about last time is commitment. And commitment safety is when couples feel safe, there's no threat to their future, they have a clear sense of their future, they have a couple identity. We know who we are. We're building our sense of us, as we talked last time, how to make our us more special. Um, and also dreaming about our future together, how that stretches out the time perspective. And it helps. This, this thing right here is so helpful, right? Because when I have a flesh moment, my, I, I, my, my brain reacts, and I want to chew my wife's head off, which I have in my flesh, right? It's like... <laughs> I want the next 50 years with her. And, and I don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt the us. And just keeping that us in mind, it helps me reign in my flesh. It, it helps me look at myself and say, I just was about to say or do something that was going to set us back six months. I was getting ready to drop a nuke on our marriage just because of a moment of frustration. And, and it's really helpful uh, to always think about protecting your us and your commitment to each other. Uh, you can count on me. We're in this together. I'll be there for you. And if you've ever, 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 ever threatened divorce, in one of those stupid moments, we all have them. Hopefully we all haven't threatened divorce in stupid moments. But if you have, I would encourage you to humble yourself and declare to your partner that you never, ever again will use the word divorce. You just, you just don't want to disrupt safety and security in your body. So, Before we go further, any thoughts about this? Some of us grew up in homes, and I, I grew up in a house that wasn't emotionally safe. If the parents loved Jesus, mom had untreated mental illness, never knew when the other shoe was going to fall. They treated her as for schizophrenia. She didn't have schizophrenia, which made her at times a zombie. Um, as a kid growing up in that, we'll talk about attachment today. We'll talk about how it messes up attachment. And all that stuff lies under the concrete. And it's like I was 35 when I got married. It's like, oh, that's behind me. And boy, when you attach in marriage, all that stuff comes up. And we talked last time about creating your us story. But then you have these plot twists, these moments that catch you by surprise. It's like, where did that come from? 
And it feels like suddenly I'm married to my enemy and our marriage is in the ditch. Two weeks into marriage, that, that's what it felt like to me. Because you know what? She had an Irish moment. She's, she's Irish from Chicago. And when her family talked about intense things or passionate things, boy, they could eyes would flash and tone would be high. And, and you know, in my family, if that was happening, you'd duck and cover because there's a plate flying across the room, right? And so, you know, a couple weeks into marriage, she has one of these moments where she's just being her Irish self. And my Dutch stoic father, who ducked and covered and never modeled how to stand up and, and protect his children, um, left me a target, and it was very dangerous. And so we'll talk a little bit today about sometimes how our marriage can get hijacked by trauma, by trauma histories, what it does to the brain. Because, man, my, I had, it's called the amygdala hijack. We'll talk about that. My brain got hijacked in a one sixteenth of a second, and uh, I couldn't talk to her for a couple days. I went into shutdown. It was the most shocking thing, right? So I wish I'd been exposed to everything we're talking about today. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. I can manage that. Uh, and marriage can be, if you do this right and create a safe haven, it can be a context for healing. My brain reactivity that I had the first two years of marriage and practicing some of these things we'll talk about today, it just went away. Uh, my brain healed up no longer had those hot reactions, uh, no longer went into the reactivity. Um, I should say we hardly ever have moments, but you know, every so often there's a thread of that, the echo of my early history. But those things are plot twists that follow us into our marriage that can hijack us. So we'll talk about that today as well. All right. How you manage conflict is gonna predict and tell a story about the long-term future of your marriage. And this comes out of the University of Denver. Uh, Scott Stanley and Howard Markman, uh, one of the things that they'll do is they'll bring, uh, a, they take couples into their lab, and they turn on a camera, and they have them just start talking. They say, pick a bone of contention. Just pick a bone of contention and talk about it. And within a matter of minutes, if these danger signs show up, escalation, invalidation, Negative interpretation, or one party withdraws as the other escalates, or both party withdraws. We know a couple's headed for trouble, and we need to do something to turn that around. We need some strategies in play to manage those things. So we're going to take a look at that. But in, in teeing this up, uh, UCLA researchers have found that when there is a conflict or a problem, one spouse tends to pursue it, and the other spouse tends to withdraw from it. Who do you think's the pursuer in general, and who do you think withdraws? I want to hear your thoughts. Wife is the pursuer. Wife is the pursuer. How many people is like family feud? What do you all say over here? This family <laughs> over here. All right, male tends to be the withdrawer. Well, my goodness, we're going to have to cut that Cadillac right down the middle. Females are more likely to pursue than males, and males are more likely to withdraw. Now, there are subcategories. We flip that, guys. If you pursue, that's great. Ladies, be honest with us. How do you interpret your husband when he's withdrawing? What do you think his withdrawal is saying to you? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. What else? That's, that is the number one answer, actually. Maybe he doesn't feel safe. 
maybe doesn't feel safe. Well, that's not what ladies are thinking. They're <laughs> <laughs> not going, I'm not safe, that's why he's withdrawing. Yeah. He doesn't care, right? Yeah. So, but why do you think men withdraw? That's why I was, yeah. they don't feel safe. Yeah. So that's, yeah, exactly. It, men withdraw actually because they don't want talking to lead to further conflict and they don't want it to become unsafe. And so it's helpful to reset this. You know, women feel responsible for how the relationship's going. And so they pursue. Um, and they feel it's their job oftentimes to bring things up, but men don't want talking to lead to conflict. So a question for men is this. What areas... and, and now, I know this is stereotypic, right? Man, I'm so sorry. We live in a contemporary age, and I, I, this can go for both parties. But just talk to men for a minute. Okay, guys, in which areas of your life are you less intimidated by conflict? Workplace. Work? What else? Sports. Sports? What else? If you've been in the military, you know what I mean. So sports, military, and business. And what do these contexts have in common? Rules. Rules. Yes. We got rules. Oh my goodness. I did the homework. <laughs> no, you got ahead of the game so you know the answer. It's in your book. So it's rules, and we want these rules to have a sense of what's in bounds, what's out of bounds, when the action should start, when it should stop, what's okay, what's not okay. So I have to ask you a question. Is how many of you have rules of engagement in your marriage around conflict. You all do. I'm glad to hear that. And it's typically one to two couples in a room this size. Isn't, it, isn't that interesting? As we get married and we don't think about what are the standards we're going to use. What happens as you get married, there's this honeymoon phase and there's a sense of who we are versus the rest of the world. And you get married, and in the 24-7, these, these unexplored differences start to show up. And it triggers threat. It's like bumping in, you're in a, in a hotel room, you, you forget where you are, it's like in the middle of the night, the room's dark, and you have to get up and walk to the other side, and, and you bump into furniture. It's like you bump into things you don't expect, and there's a sense of threat. And when threat enters the picture, we tend to polarize. Who's right and who's wrong, and who wins and who loses, right? And we get in the middle of that tension, and then we try to stuff it to go back to the honeymoon window where everything was great, and after a certain point, that just doesn't work anymore. And if we can nail down that third, the, the, the window that sort of opens the door to this more organic growth is just so life-giving, is when we have conflict resolution standards, the rules of engagement, what's okay and what's not okay. Now conflict's an opportunity to explore our differences. And it enters in this new era. And without conflict, we probably wouldn't learn how to be mindful of each other. Like with humility of mind, let each of you consider the interest of the other person as more important than your own. Philippians chapter 2. The idea of sacrifice where we lay our lives down for one another probably wouldn't be as rich if we didn't bump into these differences where we have to stop and explore them. Hey, what, is, what does this mean that we're sideways with each other, right? Let's explore it and let's learn about it. 
and let's learn about maybe what boundaries we need between us around X, Y, or Z issues. The more defined we are, the healthier and more connected we will be. So that's what this is about. Now what the problem is, is that we don't typically have, again, rules of engagement, and this little clip from Brother Tim Hawkins, I think, highlights the point. One of the things I love about the NFL, they have this thing called the challenge flag. If you don't know what that is, each coach gets a red flag. And if they think the ref makes a bad call, they throw this red flag. The ref has to look at this video replay thing on the field, see if he was wrong, change the call. I think that's a brilliant idea. I want that for marriage. Wouldn't that be awesome, man? Get in an argument, throw the red flag, ref comes out of the pantry. <laughs> So think about the traffic signal, green light, normal talking, that flow is happening, it's great. Things are great, right? When the light turns yellow, there are four danger signs, communication danger signs, University of Denver. When we spot these, we want to hit the brakes and slow things down. We don't want to keep going, we want to slow it down in a structured way. We're going to talk about what to do with that. And then when it's too hot, we need a timeout standard because once our brains are too hot, we call it flipping our lid. And we're going to talk about what brain dysregulation looks like. You can either go too hot or you can go into what's called hypoarousal or shutdown. And you can go hot and flip your lid and be hot and fiery like fight or flight, or you can go into a, more like a freeze or a shutdown response. But let's talk about this. Let's talk about the danger signs. Escalation. Responding back and forth negatively. We're going to have a little video clip of a couple in a minute who are just talking about a bone of contention and instantly they're escalating and talking over each other. The next thing you're going to see is invalidation. They, one person saying something and the wife is saying, well, no, you didn't do that because of such and such. Um, and he says, and, and so there's this invalidation or put down of each other's perspectives. The third one you're going to see is a big one. Up to 80% of marital conflict is sparked by misperceptions. We take things too personally, we mind read, we jump to conclusions, and one of the things that we do is we think, well, here we go again, it's a never-ending pattern of defeat. It's overgeneralization. And those are thinking errors, that, that those are irrational thoughts that put gas on the fire of conflict. We're gonna see those in the clip. And then you're gonna see the, the last one is the withdrawal or avoidance. It's either an unwillingness to stay in the conversation or what we do is we 
with, we withdraw from it or avoid it altogether. And you're going to see him turn his back on her, which is a form of withdrawal. So these, these escalations we're going we're gonna to watch. Now, in your book on page 48, there's a little survey. It's helpful to look at that. It's just like, how much do these danger signs affect our marriage currently? And then there's a score that you can look at. If your score is 17 to 21, you really want to stop and think about where you're headed. Uh, if it's 12 to 16, be cautious. If it's 7 to 12, hey, you're probably pretty good. I'd still encourage you to learn the strategy that we're going to talk about today. But let's watch this couple who they've, they've only come in, this is the first time that they were seen and they were asked to talk about a bone of contention and let's see what happens. All I said is, I just No, I'm just saying you're going to give me space, give me space. Maybe I don't give you space. Bedrooms. Go in the other bedroom. Why are you trying to shave it? Where do you think night? that I went? I shaved in the bathroom, I took a at bath, and then I went in the other Why bedroom. Why couldn't you do that in the morning? Because remember, I didn't come back and sleep with you. I stayed in the other oh, bedroom. Now we got to talk about that. No, I'm just telling you what I did. So? What does that have to do with anything? <sighs> what it has to do with is No, you didn't come back and sleep with me because you were pissed off because I wanted to have now, all night. Now, you see that right there? What? You asked me a question, I tried to answer it. And what was the question? And then, well, obviously, if you were to let me finish saying what I had to say, you probably would have heard it the first time. What was the question? All I'm saying is... No, what was the question? See, you do it? Look. But you, you cut me off and you said I didn't... What was the question? Okay, I'll tell you what. Okay. You talk, I'll sit here, and I'll just listen. Really? Yeah. That's not how we do things. Well, no, I just want to know what the question is because I got lost. Well, you must have got lost a lot because I didn't try to tell you three times and each time you didn't cut me off. Like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> now, I'm sure that doesn't oh. resemble anything we've ever done. <laughs> There's only a few chuckles, so maybe the rest of you are doing all right. <laughs> For <laughs> the rest of you have been married long enough, how's that? <laughs> Did you see all the danger signs there? How they escalated? How they were invalid? No, you didn't come to the bedroom because of this, and no, you this, and you that, and all the negative interpretation. They were just missing each other, talking over each other. So one of the things that they're going to learn, if you look in your book, you have what's called a speaker-listener card. Uh, the speaker-listener technique is a fabulous strategy uh, for dealing with warning signs. So if you think about it, we have when the light turns yellow and any of these show up, let's just slow it down. You don't speed up through the intersection. Slow it down and prepare to stop. And you use the speaker-listener technique. And the rules, how it goes, is if you're the speaker, like if I give the, my, Elizabeth, hey, one of the things when I sense something's happening, or if she does, it can be just like, hey, would you go first? And let me reflect what I think you're saying. You, you will get, it will become so automatic you don't even need to use the card. Because with speaker-listener, there are rules for this. When she speaks, I'm going to listen to reflect. So what she's going to do is she's going to speak in a small chunk. She's not going to mind read. She's going to keep her statements brief. And then she's going to pause and let me reflect. Ladies or, or, or wives or husbands... If you say this much, there is a terrible Christian book out there, and I won't tell you the name of it. I won't. But the thing is, that just sit and let your wife talk for 30 minutes and don't say anything. That is a horrible idea. Horrible idea. Horrible idea. Because 
you're going to remember the first thing she says and the last thing she says, and if you can't remember to reflect the middle chunk, like 26 minutes worth, she's not going to feel cared for. And so we chunk it, a small chunk, and let me reflect what I hear you say. As long as she's holding the card, she's the speaker, and here are the rules. Speak for yourself, don't mind read. Keep your statement brief, don't go on and on. Stop and let the, the listener paraphrase. She's holding the card, she's the speaker, like the talking stick. And my job is simply to paraphrase in my own words what I hear her say. So, sweetheart, what I think I'm hearing you say is this. Am I getting it right? And ask for clarification. Am I getting it right? And if not, would you clarify? And you get the rhythm of this down where I speak and pause. She speaks and pauses, and I reflect. She corrects it on the spot if I get it wrong, and she speaks again and pauses, speaks again and pauses. And it might take five, six chunks to get everything out. And you'll know. It's like, okay, like the wind coming out of the sails, and then reach out, hey, can I have the floor? Once I have the floor, she's the listener. The rules flip. I speak in a small chunk, use I statements, don't mind read, and then I pause and let her. And so the rules for both is the speaker has the floor, your job as a listener is simply to paraphrase, and then you share it back and forth. And it really is equal airtime. You will discover it doesn't matter if your wife goes first, or if you're a wife, husband go first because there's equal space for both of you to have your thoughts. Let's watch what happens. So what happens is the, the uh, Howard Markman intervenes and he teaches them how to use this. And this isn't a matter of minutes. I want you to look at the tone and the pace and the intensity. Is it intense or is it soft? When they stop to truly understand each other, let's take a look at the difference. I'm talking. I know that you may not intentionally be trying to make me feel this way, but I do feel disrespected when you do that. So it sends me into a, uh, I wouldn't say a rage, but it makes me even try harder to get my point across. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying is when I cut you off or I'm not listening, it makes you feel disrespected and more reactive. Is that correct? Right. Okay. And my reactions towards you, I start trying to do the same thing that you do. Like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to cut you off. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a tit for tat thing. I don't want to do that. Right. I don't want to have that type of interaction with you when we're trying to have a conversation. Okay. So you don't want to be reactive the whole time. So with me listening to you and giving you that, res that respect, that shows respect, and then that way you can give me the same respect in return instead of being reactive. Correct. Okay. Correct. Alright. Um, when we argue, I just want to feel like you are actually listening to me and not feel like I'm attacking you. It's sometimes I'm, it, the conversation or the topic can be very uncomfortable. so. Make sure, I just want you to hear me out mm -hmm. to the end. So I'll try to be more brief when I talk, but don't make assumptions because it makes me feel like on the defense, like I have to get everything out and then I feel, you know, upset. So you want to make sure that I give you the proper time to get everything out you have to get out, not jump to conclusions thinking you're thinking this or you're feeling this way and just let them just, just flow naturally. Right. 
Exactly. All right. Yeah. And I just wanted to, um, I don't like when we argue. I, you know, I told you this a thousand times, that, like the most uncomfortable thing is arguing with you because I care about you so much. So I, I want to have more healthier conversations with you. And um, when I bring up sensitive topics, I need to know, you know, what's a good time or how should I approach it? Because when you turn your back on me in the middle of a conversation and you shut down, that makes me feel very small. So by turning my back on you, makes you feel small, makes you feel defeated. And it also makes you feel like your points aren't even getting across. Like I'm just like, oh, whatever, I'm not, I'll listen to you. All right. All right, I want to know your reactions. Some people don't have favorable reactions about this. That's okay. What are your thoughts about using this as a standard? obvious there's a huge difference in communication. There's huge difference. It gives you rails to run on. So it's hard to escalate when you're doing this. Because I'm listening, and it's hard to, re I'm not in invalidation mode because I'm listening to understand. I'm listening to reflect. And I'm putting aside all, because sometimes we, we're sitting there, we're not hearing what our partner is saying. We're just preparing the rebuttal, right? All right, I don't know if it's you, but it's me. I have to catch that myself. So, and then negative interpretation manages because on the spot, if the person listening has reflected the wrong thing, it, the speaker just clarifies it on the spot. And, and I love what she said, when you turn your back on me and shut down, it makes me feel small. And I think it's really helpful for whoever in the marriage tends to withdraw to keep that in mind. Really, really painful when that happens. Um, but, it, you know, it's... Um, you know, just thinking about paraphrasing, I think they were doing a good job. Did you notice that when she stopped talking, the very first thing he would start to paraphrase was the last thing she said? That, that's why we call it primacy recency. It's easiest to remember the most recent thing said, and that's why it's important to keep the chunk short, because he's having a hard time remembering the first thing that she says. So if that chunk is really big, he's not going to remember a whole lot of things. And there are important things she's saying that she needs him to hear and understand. Yeah, Elizabeth. Well, something that you've said before, like, you know, we've talked about is it, this slows you down. And so your brain has time to kind of maybe regulate a little bit. And you have said before, uh, you know, if you come in hot, you have nowhere else to go but hotter. And so that's really helped me in, in a new number of situations because I can immediately, like, whoa. And um, when I think about it, it's like, I don't want to get, like, I don't want to get hotter. I don't want anybody else to go hotter so, because that freaks me out. So to be able to have a enough time to just, like, whew, bring it down so I can come in at an acceptable level and not have to go hot. There's yes. peace in that. Because then I can actually hear and listen. Uh, John Gottman, some of you know him, he, he has a premier marriage lab up at the University of Washington, Seattle. And he calls it soften your startup. Start soft. If you start hot, like Elizabeth was saying, there's nowhere to go but be hot. Mm -hmm. 
and the couple stays hot through the whole thing and they exit hot. So one of the things, I like ouch and oops, like early on, if she starts hot and I go ouch, she goes oops, rewind, we try it again, just try it again, back it up, right, ouch, oops. I like ouch and oops, it's a shorthand way of saying, hey, this is too hot, I'm getting triggered, this is too, I'm getting flooded, would you put, just ouch, okay, oops, rewind, start again. Uh, figure out, figure this out, soften it up. Conversations go so much better. If you start soft, you're more likely to stay soft and less reactive the whole time. Thank you for that. Yes? Uh, I was just going to say, I feel like it brings a level of like, accountability into the conversation. So like, when you have the time to reflect on what your partner's saying, and like, it, you know, it takes away the like, natural flesh desires of wanting to bicker for the sake of you know, getting revenge in a conversation. Well, that's so true. That mindfulness is I'm, I'm really trying to love her well by being mindful of her to understand her, how much love you, that, that's why I'm saying, even if you do this well, even in a conflict, you're making deposits in that love bank, as it were. You're really, hey, my husband cares for me. He's taking time to listen. He could flip his lid, but he's not. I appreciate that. Any other thoughts? Yes. Um, do you suggest that we like table most of the conflict for a time, like a team meeting where we can sit down and talk. I feel like we have a small daughter at home and when conflict arises, it often feels like it has to be rushed because she's there needing our attention at the same time. So then I feel like we don't necessarily have the, the time to like rewind or like really hear each other out because we're like, distracted already um, so do you suggest it's like let's table this for a time where we have each other's undivided attention and then how do you like proceed forward feeling tension but knowing you'll have to talk about it later that is, that's absolutely beautiful everything you're saying as a parent of a small child we feel this pressure we've got to deal with it quickly because uh, but I'm telling you that, that quick solutions are not lasting solutions. Hmm. And so oftentimes what we need is a more thorough discussion with speaker listener to make sure we, we deeply understand each other. We're gonna talk next time about problem solving. If we problem discuss first, way before we think about problem solution, uh, we're gonna be much better. We're getting ready to talk about the timeout. That when you run into, the, it's like an oil spot on the road and you're spinning out and uh, sometimes we, we can't use this be either we don't have the time for a thorough discussion or we're dysregulated and our, our brains are offline and we, we're saying stupid stuff. We have to time out. But built into that timeout strategy is going to be some uh, time standard that says this is when we're going to come back and check in with each other. Um, so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yes. Clark, do you recommend like another person? Like it seems like it would be or it seems to me it's harder to do to, to learn this on your own. Like they obviously had a coach. Um, is, is that possible? Like, would you how do you recommend that? Like even outside, like of course, if you can go to counseling, you know, or you can go to one of these centers, great. But if you don't have that, say somebody else is available, how does that play in? Well, I would like for you all in your, because you all are a life group here, right? It'd be really cool to see you all take some time at your next meeting and do some lighthearted back and forth, and one couple watches while the other couple practices. Yeah. And so, 
Uh, you know, I like I like oatmeal cookies. She likes chocolate chips. So I'm the speaker. Well, I like I like oatmeal cookie books because, and I pause, and after giving her a reason, and she reflects, and I do it the next part. And then it's her turn, and it's, oh, I like cho chocolate chip. We got to get in the rhythm of this, or else if it's not practice, it's so far in the periphery we don't even think. Now, if you're courageous, you can do like Apple phone versus Android. Uh, we have that in our family with my, me and my son. Um, have a lot of fun with that. But, but I think it would be great. So, like those of you here, you really want to practice this. Try practicing at home. It's helpful if you have somebody sitting with you where you can observe and practice. So that's a good question. Bottom line, think about this. A soft answer turns away wrath. Grievous words stir up anger. Soften it up. If you can't soften it up, we need to talk about the very next thing, which is a timeout. But in order to do that, I just want to let's, let's talk about something. We talked about. We already talked about these things. It, it can feel unnatural because it's not practice. And by the way, you can't do it very well if you're upset. So uh, we're going to talk about timeout in a minute. I want to address this new information in the last couple of years from the neuroscience about the window of tolerance. How many of you have heard of the window of tolerance? A couple of you have, especially if you're in the school system, if you are a therapist that works with trauma. Well, let's talk about this. Daniel Siegel, out of UCLA, Stephen Porges, the University of North Carolina, they're talking about your brain when you're not in a stress mode with your wife, and she's not in a stress mode with you, there's this window that you're in where there's a, you're in a state of flow. It's interesting what they can measure. Like your brain has a Wi-Fi system. Porges talks about that, where, man, I pick up her nonverbal cues, and I get in sync with that, and there is this flow. And you think about if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with each other, where both of you are walking in the spirit together, and there's this unison and this joy, and this partnership, and playfulness, and connectedness, and curiosity, and openness, it all happens in this window. Basically, what we're looking at, if, if I'll, I'll use Siegel's hand model of the brain. If this is your brain, and this is your spinal cord, your nose sticks out right here. Right behind the forehead, right up here, are what we call executive functions of the, of the front part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. That's where we think, and that's where abstract reasoning lies, so we can flexibly sort of use our thoughts to more creatively understand each other. So we think, and we reason, and we formulate our responses, and we control our impulses. And we put words to things. The middle part of the brain, if I open up my, my, my fist, is what's called the limbic area. See where my thumb is? The middle part of that area has what's called the amygdala. And the amygdala's job is to scan for threat. So what happens is when your brain's online and you are in this window of tolerance, you can feel and think at the same time the middle part of your brain is where emotions are generated, the emotion brain. Part of the middle part of your brain also is a Rolodex or a file cabinet of every painful thing that's ever happened to you. And the brain never forgets a thing, even though you might think it does. So your partner can come into the equation and have a tone in the voice and a look on the face. And 
what it does, the amygdala picks up that cue, processes it through that Rolodex, and one sixteenth of a second, faster than you can blink, interprets it as danger, and releases adrenaline and cortisol. That stress response hijacks your ability to think and reason and use your impulse control, and it's called flipping your lid. Have y'all ever had a rage response where things are going well and something gets said or done, and all of a sudden, it might be road rage, it might be, I'll tell you what mine was. Actually, before I do that, let me fill in the blank. So we have this window of tolerance, much like a rain barrel, and as long as there's plenty of space in that, we can encounter stress with each other and stay in that open, receptive, engaged state. But when it spills over, when adrenaline and cortisol flood this window, our brain goes into hyperarousal, that's through that fight or flight, rage response, irritability, outburst of anger, or hypoarousal, which is more of a freeze and a shutdown and a numbness where you have a hard time even thinking. You can't formulate your words very well. Um, and it, you feel a little bit like roadkill, right? Does any of this make sense? And I really want you to identify what direction when my brain dysregulates and my, I flip my lid with my partner, what direction does my brain go? Does this make sense to you all? I'll tell you what. So back to my history with Elizabeth. Um, that Irishness, that tone of voice, look and face, that's passion in her family, my brain interpreted it as threat. And there's a million examples in there of danger from my family of origin. And boy, that adrenaline surge faster than I can blink, I flip my lid. And what happens if you have developmental trauma throughout your childhood, there's a tendency to go flat. Think about a child in a dangerous environment. You want to make yourself as small as possible. You just have a freeze response. And so this was me. Uh, so she went hot, I went cold. And had no idea what was going on. I was teaching trauma at the time. I was like, holy smokes, this 35 years before I got married, thinking I had it all, all together. And then attachment brings it right up under the, from under the concrete, and, and it kicks in. So yes? So as someone who can be a bit of like a hothead, like I hear this and um, it kind of it makes me feel better, like almost like in a sense like it gives me an excuse for like the way that I act, I guess. It's like, oh, well, I can't control it. It's just like childhood trauma or it's the way my dad acted or it's the way stuff comes out in the past and in the present. So how do you balance like that with like still holding yourself accountable to like your actions? That is a beautiful statement right there. Did you hear that? I think we live in a victim culture that says, well, it happened to me. That's just the way I am. And that's not the answer here. We can't help what happened to us then, but we can't. We are responsible for managing this now. The echoes of that history, it's like a plot twist. Suddenly, it's like, where did this come from? Man, we're marrying each other. We're each other's best friend, and we got this going. All of a sudden, I'm in the ditch, and I'm shut down. I can't talk to my wife. Which, by the way, is going to fire up my wife, right? Because what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong with you? And she gets hot and I go cold. Uh, does this make sense? So we can't help what happened, but we're going to talk about how to manage it now because it's really important what you're talking about. And that's where we call it, and I'm going to get to you in a second, but to follow up here, that's why we call it brain regulation. If you tend to go hot, that's why we need a timeout. The more you monitor this window, you can get really good at being mindful of how hot am I, for example. You can get really mindful 
of when flooding kicks in and there's that thin margin right here at the top of the rain barrel right before you're going to lose it. And get really, really good at identifying that margin and calling a timeout. And taking that timeout, we're going to talk about some strategies to cool your brain off to get your brain, your executive functions back online so you can think and reason and not come back in and bite your wife's head off. So you can use speaker listener. And so there's how to downregulate, and then sometimes it's like how to upregulate. So um, if you go into shutdown and numbness, we've got to find a way to upregulate. So somebody over here had a comment or a question or a thought, and I want to get to it. Yes? Um, I was just saying, as a, a fellow hothead um, in our marriage, I, there's an example in Scripture that kind of helps me with what you were saying, like self-regulate. Um, when Jesus was going into the temple, uh, a lot of people just think, oh, he just raged in. And actually, I, I love it because he actually steps aside and it says he went out and got a whip. But the amount of time it took to create that whip made that he meant that he stepped aside and took like almost hours to like put that whip together and then came back in the temple. And I just, it just reminded me of that, like how even he, as an example, stepped aside and calmed down and I guess became like self-aware. Um, that is really yeah. good. I've never heard anyone talk about that before. That's really good. You take time to cool off. So, yeah, because what happens, and I'm so glad you brought this up, because the person who tends to flip their lid and they get flooded, and what happens again, all flexible thinking goes away. And it's like lock and load, and your enemy is right in front of you, and you feel like the solution is to just unleash, right? Pull out the bazooka. That's what it feels like. And so we give in to that flesh response because that's what it's telling us to do. And your wife or your husband, it's the closest person to you. And guess what? It's the person who can hurt you the worst. So these moments that kick in, and we've got to get really, that's why safety, we come back to safety, is so important to catch those moments. So if, if I'm in hyperarousal, what I want to do, and, and I'm sort of ahead of myself, I should have put this later maybe, but when the, in the timeout, um, one of the things to get your brain back online, whether you shut, go too hot or too cold, is you name entertainment. Like, take your time out. First of all, let's do some physiology here. Physiologically, how do you want to calm the system back down? Uh, Andrew Huberman out of Stanford, he did the Huberman lab. The, 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 the recent thing he's talking about is the double breath. And I had not heard of, you know, I've heard of box breathing before. You know, breathe in to count five, pause to count five, exhale to count five. But this works even better. I've been practicing it. You breathe in as, as much as you can through your nose. And then you put a second quick breath on top of that. And then you exhale slowly through your mouth. And then you breathe in through, through your nose. Second quick breath and exhale slowly through your mouth. And what you'll find in about 30 seconds or a minute, you're going to be yawning. And that's how you know the central nervous system, there's two parts to it, the stress response, relaxation response, is that if you switch the flip, you flip the switch, you're going to get that adrenaline cortisol coming down more quickly. And so do some breathing, then name it to tame it. And the four questions are, what just happened? Let's name it. Well, what just happened? Well, we're in the kitchen, and she has an opinion about, let's say, 
something we're doing, and we, we did home remodeling the second week of marriage. We shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> that just hit me after 26 years. So what just happened? What are the emotions about what just happened? Glad, sad, anger, fear, hurt, lonely, guilt, shame. Keep a small little dashboard. What are my thoughts telling me about her and about me and about the outcome of this situation? And what do I need? And just asking those questions can bring your thinking brain back online so that you can go back into the conversation after the timeout using speaker listener to process this. Uh, so for me, if, if you, so that's how you cool off your brain. But for those of us who go into shutdown, do we have any shutdowners in here? People who just go numb? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's really important to get moving. Activate your five senses. And I love Psalm 62.8, and I did that immediately. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your complaint before him, for God's a refuge. Go boldly before him in your time of need. And I would leave the house, and, and you know, I'll be back in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But I would go walk and talk it out loud. It didn't matter if someone thought I was a crazy man walking down the street. <laughs> because I was trying to get my thinking brain back online. Lamentations 3 is a great example of this. Please read Lamentations. First 17 verses, it's God, you made me pray for the wild animals and laughing stock of the community. And you gave me gravel for food and I broke my teeth. And he's just blaming God for everything. And so what his, obviously his brain's dysregulated. And I love the scripture. It gives me permission to do that, right? And it's God he's pouring his complaint out towards. <laughs> and he, as he's pouring out his lament, you get to verse 17, 18. I recall these things, the bitterness and the gall, and my heart's downcast in me. And then the switch flips on. This I recall to my mind. Therefore have I hope. It's because the Lord's mercies were not consumed. His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And then a couple verses later, the Lord doesn't willingly bring affliction to the sons of men. So that's what happens. Like, and we're hijacked, and we're going into shutdown, and it's like roadkill, and it's like... Get moving and talking and naming because it brings, again, once your executive functions are back online, now I'm in a better place with adrenaline. Get my head above that flood level. I can think and reason and hear, and now I can come back and have that conversation. Yes? Um, I had one parent who was constantly like in a hyperarousal and one who was in a hypoarousal. One, the, for me personally, the hyperarousal is like what I remember being not wanting to replicate, although I do, but almost to overcompensate that, I'll just go to the hypoarousal so that I won't be attacking, I'll just shut down. So do you suggest, just depending on which one you're in, you're doing these specific things for that specific state. Yes, and you highlight something that when we're, and we're going to talk about attachment patterns in just a minute before we talk about the timeout. Because if we have a mother who, for instance, can be volatile, or I'm just going to stereotype in my family, mm -hmm. um, or can be sometimes really tuned in and beautifully connected, which my mom could be, but then when bipolar kicked in, she could be really dangerous. Mm -hmm. You never really know, so there's in, 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 inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And then the, the father who was so Dutch and stoic that he just shut down and avoid. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I would have both. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, I, but, but I really went more towards my father in terms of shutdown. But what you're saying is we can have both. Mm -hmm. yeah. We can go both directions. 
a couple other things here of caution. I've, I've never, I don't really talk. Give me feedback if this was too much because I'm realizing I need to bring more neuroscience and that's what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm doing stuff I've not done any workshops here before. If you go into shutdown, your brain's gonna tell you to go energize. Try to upregulate. Pornography is gonna be a huge pull because the brain knows that dopamine can get triggered and the, the dopamine circuitry hits the same part of your brain as cocaine and activating energy in your brain. Food, if you find yourself in front of an open refrigerator. Um, uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, cell phone, social media, anything to try to act. You gotta be really careful. And so what, what you have to realize, you get really good at catching yourself and upregulating in a healthy way Movement, NIH studies are saying the, the, the scent of lavender, so if you have a room diffuser, the olfactory nerve is right next to the part of the brain where you get triggered, so it's something to upregulate up your brain. One last thing I'll say, and we can comment or move forward. There are some of us who have a small window of tolerance for one emotion and a big window of tolerance for another. Right? My window of tolerance for anger, because anger was so dangerous growing up, was very small. And any hint of passion or intensity could trigger flooding. And when you realize whatever, it could be a situation, a context, a cue, an emotion. When you discover you have a narrow window and you just practice this mindfulness, you catch yourself. You go, you time it out, you cool off your brain, you name it, you come back and check reality. What you'll discover is that you grow that window, and after a while, you don't get triggered and flood. It's beautiful. What I had to do with Elizabeth, my narrow window was so narrow that when I would get triggered and flooded, the midbrain stress response, I had to instantly love, hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. I give her the benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to keep my feet on the ground. I, 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 I'm going to believe the best even though the alarm state's telling me the opposite. Mm -hmm. Believe the best even though my alarm state's telling me the opposite. And then I would go and try to cool off my brain to get my, because this is still hot, it's just a different reaction to hot. So I'd cool off my brain, name it to tame it, and then come back and the first thing you do is check it out. Hey, is this what you meant? And every time you discover it's a false alarm, that the threat I felt was not true. That was truth, this was not. What happens, it's like a bubble floating in the air and you poke it with a pin, suddenly it's gone. You literally deactivate the alarm state, right? And I got, after two years, a year and a half, two years of practice, it's like she didn't trigger me. Her cues didn't trigger me anymore. And it healed my brain up. I also have to say in here, you're talking about mindfulness for yourself, I think, but also, as his spouse, I had to have some mindfulness a couple of it. I had to have some mindfulness of my own behavior. Like you're you're saying you're you're telling how it was, yes, but it also shined a mirror on me that I had to look into and say, okay, how am I communicating that's causing this? And you know, part of marriage is is looking at those things and it's not about, well, this is this is who I am and this is how I am and you have to accept that. It, it, it's not about my right. It was about, okay, so some way in my communication, 
I'm affecting him and it's really hard for him. And so I had decisions to make. Like my fire and my passion, part of it is, is God-given personality, but I also had a background of unhealthy patterns. So I had to make decisions for the, out of love for my spouse to say, maybe I can do this differently too. So it's not all on him, and, and, and I hear him say that, and he's gracious about using our, our experiences in public. And so I, I just want to say, as a spouse, I have to look at things too. I have decisions to make that say, yes, this is the way I communicate. This is what's, what I've known. Um, should I have to change? I should think about it. And you did such a great job in being mindful of certain cues that were triggering. I, I don't, I'm not saying you caused it. I'm saying there are certain cues that my brain would react to. And that's what the wonderful thing about partnership and teamwork. And, hey, let's make this the safest place on earth. And we both dedicated ourselves within a matter of weeks that this is what we're going to do to really build a safe haven for each other. You uh, mentioned, like, some temptations maybe if you go into that hypoarousal, right, of how your brain, what if you go hot? Like, what if you go to hyper? Are there things, are, is your brain wanting it to come down? And are there things that you... Uh, no, no, the brain doesn't really want it to come down. Hyper is like, man, I want to blast. <laughs> I want to fire up that cannonball and blow up the wall that I'm right in front of, right? It's, there's just something that's like, ah, I'm going to feel so much better if I unleash, right? Because that's the idea is I'm primed and now let's just pull the trigger. I don't know, some of you may have some other other things to try to, maybe your brain's tempted to do. Yes? Um, when my husband and I go through these things, a lot of times we're, we're sitting in our car because that's like our quiet zone and uh, we don't have too many of those. <laughs> and, um, and even in that, it's just that tension is, is so thick. And then I get to the point where I literally can't hear what he's saying at all. I can't even digest my own emotions. And so I'm just like, right in the middle of the conversation, I literally cry out to God and say, God, I do not understand this person. He's driving me absolutely out of my mind. And I just say it right out there in front of him. You know, I don't even hide my conversation with God. It's not even in my head because I need God so desperately to heal whatever is going on inside of us. Yeah. Figure out why are we having these conflicts and everything. And then I find that once I've cried out to God, God is very present. Mm. And um, we were listening to somebody who was talking about the sovereignty of God. And that's what I need is to remember that God has all of this under control and he wants us to cry out to him and that he will enable our brains to be able to calm down. Yes, he does. And be able to then come back to each other again. So, what I've done Yeah, and, and, and so, I, this is beautifully teeing up the timeout strategy, the second strategy, because when, you, when you're starting to get to that place where your brain's going fuzzy and you can't understand or you realize, I'm getting ready to flip my lid and really blow, uh, that's where we call it, we're going to call a timeout and we separate and then we're going to do this regulation work and we can come back and re-engage and, and, and look at that. I want to just point out something real quick. Um, again, something I haven't talked about before. Sue Johnson, who wrote Emotionally, she created Emotionally Focused Therapy. You can find the book Love Sense. You can find the book Hold Me Tight. 
Uh, there's some hold me tight workshops in town, um, emotionally focused therapy. It's really, really good for couples. It's probably the most successful approach to marriage therapy. And what Sue Johnson said, if you have these, there are four adult attachment patterns, uh, and there's the secure type, and then there's the type that you might have maybe a parent who was nurturing and then not, like my mom, and you have a dad who was dismissive and just shut it down, rub dirt on it, get over it. Uh, you can oftentimes you see a female who is preoccupied with, do you care for me or not? And you have a husband who is, just rub dirt and get, on, get over it. Suck it up. Don't let it get to you. And what happens oftentimes when vulnerability enters the picture and she sends a bid for connection, and that bid for connection is too intense. It's like the current coming down the wire to the breaker box. It flips the box and the lights in the house go dark. That's what it looks like. And the moment it looks like he is triggered and is not available, it triggers threat in her brain. Midbrain goes off. Her thinking brain has to map on what it means. And she's thinking he doesn't care. And so she feels anger, fear, and hurt. And then the next sequence, what happens with her is she protests. And her protest then triggers threat in him. And he has to interpret that. She's so controlling, so he withdraws. The withdrawal intensifies her threat. He really doesn't care. And she protests louder, and, and he gets colder. And now we have what's called a tango that's co-created. Does this make sense? <laughs> every, every couple has a tango. You've got to figure yours out. It could be withdrawal. You could have two people who just avoid vulnerability. And so when this kicks in, we just avoid each other. But oftentimes this. And you can have a beautiful marriage. The, you know, the china, the crystal, the floral display, the linens on the table, it's just the banquet is beautiful. But a raw spot gets touched and the dragon tail swoops it all off in a big mess on the floor. And that's when this kicks in. And you think, this is a catastrophe, what happened to us? How did we get here? Do you have a thought? Yeah, well, I was, uh, this might be a deviant that I've sidetracked, but I was curious. I had a dad that was very dismissive. Like, would, like, you know, say, you're stupid for thinking that, you know, just, uh -huh. so that's sort of my approach. So I'm thinking of this as a dad who now has two young kids. So the technique that I'm, that we're learning as partners, how much of this can you apply to just as children? Like, like you know, my son is three years old. Like, should we do the same thing with them on the, the reinforcing, like, hey, I'm the listener, you're the speaker, tell me how you're feeling. That conflict, is that something that can be? I, I, Let's pick that up at some point because one of the things that happens once you know your insecure attachment patterns, yeah. and, and I'm gonna it, I'm gonna invite you to there's a book called How We Love that is probably the I'm getting the most traction in a counseling room How We Love and the workbook by the Yurkovich, uh, Milan Yurkovich and his wife. What it does is it breaks down. We have that early imprint is gonna govern how you how you are in your marriage and how you are with conflict. And the preoccupied pattern looks a certain way, the dismissive pattern. And then if you have a parent that is preoccupied and the other one's dismissive, you tend to have this fearful avoidant pattern where I want to be close to you, but I could get hurt. And so there's this vacillation back and forth. Figure out your pattern. It's really, really helpful. I hope this isn't too academic. I hope it's something that you Clark, can... they also wrote a parenting book. A parenting the, book. How yeah. we love with kids. And, and the thing is, is that uh, what we now know is new information. We used to think these were ingrained and you couldn't change them. 
and now both secular and Christian researchers are finding that when you are mindful of that window of tolerance transform your ability to manage these things, you end up being the best kind of parent. Yes. I think even on the window of tolerance, you talked about like the micro size of like her emotion. And then you also talked about like we should have renovated our first second week of marriage. I think there's something profound there for like the macro size of the window of tolerance of the relationship. Like for us, we've talked like, well, we did too much our first year of marriage. And I think it really shortened on a macro scale, like our window of tolerance for each other. And so like in life, uh, just so much external stressors really made us go to that hyper hypo. And now you're saying something powerful that, that that rain barrel, if you have too much going on and it's already pre-existing almost full, it takes very little to spill over between the two of you. So let's talk about this last one and we, we have about five minutes left. It's what happens when it's too hot. And I think you were saying, what do we do in these moments? Well, we wanna have a good timeout strategy. Uh, let's talk about that because uh, when it's too hot, we have to start by asking yourself, what's too hot? Well, too hot for me and my Dutch family, it does take very little for my brain, at least it did for it to feel like it's too hot. Her Irish family, they could tolerate a whole lot more intensity. But you want to talk about that to get on the same page. Talk about what cues are too hot for you all. Next thing you want to do is time out. You have to have an agreed upon timeout signal. I don't care if it's banana. I don't, if you have three kids, Paul, Emily, and Greg, peg. Because you don't want to be fighting in front of your kids. And you don't want to flip your lid. And you don't want to turn your back on your wife, hot or cold. You want to call a timeout. And the, the idea is you're going to separate to cool off. And it's 15 to 20 minutes. And see, I think this will work for you if you're in the car and your brain's starting to go fuzzy. Use your timeout signal. You're going to get out and you're going to walk with the Lord, pour your heart out to him, because you're right, as you do that, you get your thinking brain back online. Ask yourself those four what questions, and then, and then get back in, in the game. Don't follow your partner. <laughs> Don't follow your partner. Hi, hey, Eric, husband, you know, a husband who's dismissive, like, I'm, I'm so fuzzy I can't think straight, and he calls a timeout, and she follows him because she's preoccupied and anxious. Do you care about me or not? He goes in the master bedroom closet, and she stands in the doorway. What do you think is going to happen when he feels trapped? <laughs> Sad but true. I hear those stories, and, and sometimes police are called, so you don't want that to happen because when you're cornered, that's when the adrenaline does really unleash sometimes. You don't want to follow your partner. And don't call a timeout and then get the parting shot. Don't call, oh, I want a timeout. And by the way, <laughs> you don't want to do that. That happens. Uh, come back when cooled off and use your conflict resolution skill, which will be the speaker-listener technique. Use I need a timeout. You're not trying to control your wife or your husband. You're trying to control your brain. If you come back and you still can't think rationally or use speaker-listener, you're still too hot. Within 24 hours, we will set an agreed-upon time when we're going to come back and talk about this. You don't call a timeout and go away. Your wife will feel abandoned by you. Your husband will feel abandoned by you. A lot of time, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I hear all the time, I'm done. Well, what, what does that mean? You're done with me? You're done with us? You're done with our future? It, it, it's so threatening, and that's why your partner wants to keep talking, because I don't want to be done. I want to save this marriage. So it could be a nonverbal cue. Um, 
you just don't want to be timing each other out in front of your kids if you use timeout with your kids, for example. You want to find a signal that instantly you stop action. Decide how you're cool and get to cool down and come back and restart with speaker listener technique. Um, think about what you're going to do during the timeout. Uh, take captive every thought to make obedient to Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Those negative thoughts will keep you angry. You're not in that timeout to load your gun. You are in that timeout to cool off your brain. Not to load your gun. Yes? Because when practically speaking, when you get in this conflict, it's usually the evening. And there's like the potential for me to kind of go hypo and want to deal with it like later. But later sometimes can mean, okay, let's just go to bed and talk about it tomorrow and then spend the whole day kind of waiting to discuss, like, is there a, a window of time that is too much or too little, like, what are your thoughts on that? And so, late at night, I've heard, you know, the Ephesians 4 used a lot, don't let the sun go down on your wrath, which some people say, that means we have to stay up talking until we resolve this, and they're up till 3 in the morning, they're exhausted. Your couples get so reactive because they're so exhausted and tired, so that's not a good... You don't let the sun go down. Look, I know I'm angry with you. You're angry with me. I love you. I care about you. Just call a timeout. Let's set a time where we can come and we can talk. Now, if you can identify what the issue is specifically and say, can we take five minutes, ten minutes, and you speak to the listener back and forth, it's a structured way. And what you'll find is if you reflect what your partner says and she reflects what you say, is that sometimes just that understanding is enough to cool things off and then to calm your heart. If you don't know what you're walking into the next day, that can be a little bit scary to your brain. And so, so if you can try speaker listener to get a, a, a sense of understanding each other and then agree when you're going to come back. But within 24 hours, so hey, by tomorrow evening, let's set aside some time and talk about this. It's going to be really helpful. And try to get at what's behind the threat that you feel. If, like, what's Generally, underneath the anger or other things like hurt feelings or unmet needs, for example. So what we talked about is talking naturally, the green light, when things, the danger signs show up, escalation, invalidation, filtering, uh, withdrawal. We want to use speaker-listener. If you try to use speaker-listener and it's too hot, you can't use it, it's not working, that means you need a timeout. When you come out of timeout, you want to come out of timeout with speaker-listener in hand because you really... You're in a vulnerable state. You need some structure to keep the, the train on the tracks and have that conversation. So that's what I have for you. Uh, don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but repay with evil with a blessing. You are called to inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and lips from deceitful speech, 1 Peter 3, 9 and 10. Uh, you're going to see on page 57 your team assignment. Um, there's something that you'll complete on your own conflict patterns in our relationship. Look at the patterns. Uh, you're going to complete the timeout agreement together. There is a devotion, follow Christ example devotion, and prepare for your team meeting together. So I, I really do, do hope that, that this is a blessing to you. And then one last verse, the wisdom from, from above, from heaven, is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James 3, 17 and 18. 
We want to be peacemakers. I hope I didn't make you squirm today. That's a lot. Two skills, timeout, speaker, listener. Practice speaker, listener, figure out your timeout signal. Okay? I'll pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your loving, your love for us, for sacrificing yourself, for laying yourself down for us, for your blood that, that covers our sin, for resurrection life that empowers us to do what we can't in our flesh. Father, I pray for each of us here that we would want to walk in the light as you are in the light, that we would have fellowship with our partner, and uh, that you would use our marriage to radiate your glory to this world as a billboard of your gospel, that we'd live sacrificially and mindfully with each other. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be with you all. Thank you for the participation today.